what I discovered, to my surprise, is that regret points the way to the good life. That regret teaches us about the good life in ways that almost no other topic does. I think that's at the heart of why people are leaning in. If you look at people's regrets, the guts of people's regrets, and synthesize them, analyze them, they tell you what makes life worth living. So we've all been told, try to live a life without regrets. But what if regret was actually a good thing? That is a highly provocative question that today's guest, Dan Pink, asks and then answers with a whole bunch of researched and validated ways that regret can actually be an incredibly valuable experience and even a power tool for a life well lived. In fact, a life entirely without regret, he argues, might even do more harm than good. I've known Dan for well over a decade now. He's been on the show a number of times over the years. A former White House speechwriter, he left that world and shifted focus to writing books that really open our eyes to the human condition and plant seeds to to do life better. These include New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive to Sell as Human and When. His books have sold millions of copies, been translated into 42 languages and won many, many awards. And in Dan's new book, The Power of Regret, he takes on this topic we've all grappled with and gives it this surprising reframe. He draws on research in psychology and neuroscience, economics and biology to challenge widely held assumptions about emotions and behavior. And using the largest sampling of American attitudes about regret ever conducted, as well as his own World Regret Survey, which by the way has collected regrets from more than 16,000 people in 105 countries, some of which he shares during our conversation. He identifies these four core regrets that most people have. And these four regrets, Dan argues, operate as a, a kind of a photographic negative of the good life. And in it, and through our conversation today, we find out how regret, our most misunderstood emotion, can be the pathway to our best life. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Dan Pink, it's good to be hanging out again. Um, that's after we have been jamming on and off in different ways on the mic behind the mic for many years now. A couple of decades, I think, now. At this I think point. so. I think so, yeah. Um, we're having this conversation at a really interesting moment in time, and for so many different reasons. Um, 21 plus, 20 plus years ago, you write a book called Free Agent Nation, which basically predicts um, a future where people are going to be en masse um, exiting mainstream corporate culture to do their own things, hanging out their own shingles, solopreneur, entrepreneur, freelancer, all sorts of different formats. And we're sitting here having this conversation right now. And um, you are looking like somebody who has this wise oracle who knew exactly <laughs> what was coming. <laughs> yes, that's how I consider myself, the wise oracle of Northwest Washington, D.C., so my recollection is when that book first came out, half the people were like, yeah, this is genius. And then there are a whole bunch of people who are like, this is insanity. No way. Yeah. This is not the future. And here yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, you know, as a writer and you know this too, um, what you want, you're always, you always want a reaction. Um, the, the only thing worse than people telling you you're an idiot is people not saying anything. And, and in that book, yeah, it was a, it was, it was divided. People said, "Oh my God, you're totally right," um, and other people saying, "What the hell are you talking about?" But this is the case again, going back to my, you know, uh, as a longtime Washingtonian, this is what what's known as in politics as being ahead of the voters. I think I was a little ahead of the voters on this one, but a lot of that stuff ended up being, you know, a lot of it ended up being more right than wrong. I missed a bunch of things, but it ended up being more right than wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of when you look at the, the state of um, things today, given how much flux there is and how much change there is, I mean, you couldn't have predicted the circumstance of the last two and a half years, but. Oh, no, no, no. But but even without that, like the trend was definitely on point. Um, and we've seen so much exodus and so much flux and so much, you know, and now we're sitting here and, and the, the, the phrase that's been re- repeated mercilessly over the last three and a half months has been the quote, great resignation. Mm. And then everyone's seems to be throwing money at a problem, which I think is just rooted in something very different. You know, you can't throw money at, at a meaning problem and expect things to be fixed. And my sense is that that's really at the root of what's going on. I'm curious what your take is. On the great resignation. I mean, I think the great resignation is mixed. If you look at the, like part of it looks at the data and says that some of the great resignation are, are people who are a little bit older saying the hell with that. I don't want to work anymore. Right. And part of it is people at the lower end of the labor market saying, wow, this job I had is really awful and I'm not going to take it anymore, which I think is a, which I think is a, which I think is a good thing. And I think part of it is other people saying, you know, what's the point? I don't have any security. I'm not sure the system is actually configured that fairly. And here I am two years into a pandemic reckoning with a sense of meaning and loss and what my life is about. Why would I want to stick around dealing with the nonsense at the Acme Widget Corporation, even if they're letting me w- work remotely. But I actually, I'm fairly, believe it or not, I'm actually fairly optimistic about this. And I'll tell you why. This is, you, you know, in that book that you, nobody but you and my wife seem to remember, in that book, I did talk about remote work and, and basically saying that this divide between 
working one place and living another place is a historical aberration. It makes no sense in some ways and that there's a natural affinity between the two. And the only the big barrier is technology. And even that people said I was some people said I was nuts about. They said, you can't trust people to work at home. You can't you know, it's like if you have people working at home, we don't have the technology to do it and you can't trust them. They're going to shirk. They're going to play around. Working at home is an excuse for 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 slackery. And, you know, in March of 2020, we did this kind of insane international experiment where 100 million people around plus around the world did it in four days. And it was fine. And what I think is that that becomes a very hard egg to unscramble and that the degree of autonomy that, that you see in a free agent workforce and the degree of autonomy, the degree of autonomy that I think people need to live a healthy, meaningful life is, I think, deepening. And I think that's generally a good thing. And so I, I do think when we come out on the other side of that, this, whenever that may be, that we're going to come out of it, I think, with a somewhat reconfigured view of, of work, that people should have some amount of self-direction, that people should have greater dignity and control over their work, and that it's actually intolerable in a society like ours to have jobs that are just horrible. And, and I really do think that the, the we're going to head in that direction. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, the re-examining of the bargain we made that got us here is a really good thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, the choices that people are making now, I, on the one hand, I'm super excited about because I think people are making more choices in the name of purpose and possibility. On the other hand, mm -hmm. I wonder if the metrics by which they're making those choices are fully hmm. formed at this particular moment in time. What do you mean? Meaning that, I, you know, like I have, and this kind of leads into like the topic of regret, I have a really big question mark over whether a significant percentage of the people who are opting into the great resignation are going to find themselves two years later in the great regret because they, they're going to be in a different office, different paint on the wall, different boss, yeah. different industry, different job, different company. And realizing that here, here am I in this like all new place. And I did this and I kind of blew up a lot of things because it was normalized and it felt mm. like it was more okay to do it in a way that I hadn't mm. felt before. And I went through the, the disruption of the change and I'm not feeling any different than I did before. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm curious. I'm, I'm really curious what the longer, what the two to five year horizon is on when people reflect back, well, how's this all going to land? I've given up on two or five year horizons because too short. if we had gone back in time, think about having, the, John, Jonathan, think about having this conversation uh, five years ago. Yeah. The world that has unfolded in the last five years is... It's not like something out of a bad comic dystopian novel. Mm. And if I told you all the stuff that was going to go down, you would say, oh, come on. That's yeah. like a bad screenplay. And we've been living through a bad screenplay. So five years from now, who knows? Know. Um, that said, that said, I do think that there that, that, that there is a reversion to the mean in general over time and everything. And so – Maybe we have a period coming up of relative calmness and normality. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like there's a window and it will at some point close. There's a, there's a normalization of taking big, bold action that is not going to be perpetually open. So it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Hmm. Um, all right. So Free Agent Nation, to sell as human, uh, drive when you have spent a lot of time writing about the human condition 
To Sell as Human, tell me if I got this right, if I remember this correctly, was the first book where you decided it was time to actually start to be the writer who wasn't synthesizing other people's work and then overlaying my own input, but actually like bring your own data into it. You start actually doing a lot of your own research. Uh, yeah, and that one I did. Absolutely. Yeah, which has been something that's continued to this day and, yeah. and brings you and your, your newest to the topic of regret, which I was so curious about because I'm, I'm curious what led you to the topic. Now, clearly, it's super relevant in the moment in time in so many different ways that we're in, but like you're, I know you're working on this a long time before this moment. So why this oh, yeah, topic? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started working on this pre-pandemic, and I think that the trigger – you know, again, I don't really have epiphanies. Um, so I wish I did. I I have, I have kind of slow hunches, but there was a, there was a moment on this one pre pandemic and yeah. And and you might be able to relate to this because you and I are somewhat similarly situated in sort of where we are in life. But, uh, in 2019, my elder daughter graduated from college and I'm sitting in this college graduation and it's long. There's like a lot of different things. And, you know, her last name starts with P. So you got to wait a while. And so I'm thinking, and, and I'm sort of have this, this, weirdly distorted thought about how, wait a second, this kid was just born like this. She can't be graduated from college. And then even worse than that, I'm thinking, wait a second, how can I have a kid who's graduated from college? I graduated from college. What is it like four years ago, six years ago, you know? So I had that weird sort of time distortion. I started thinking about college and I'm like, God, and I started thinking about the regrets that I had in college. I started thinking, God, you know what? I wasn't, I could have been a lot kinder. I could have worked harder. I could have taken more risks. And Anyway, it just stuck with me, and I just happened to mention to a few people, and what was interesting about that is that people leaned in. And, and when I say leaned in, I actually mean that in some ways physically. Like, I'm having a conversation with them, and they and they, they, they want to talk more about it. They want to share their own experience. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. That's a very interesting reaction for a writer. And um, I was actually working on another project, and I started looking at some of the research on regret, and I was like, wait a second. This is super interesting. I think we've totally gotten this wrong. Me and the other thing is that you know, I was at a point in my life when this is something that I that I actually wanted to contend with. I would not have written about regret when I was in my thirties. I didn't have enough mileage on me. Now in my fifties, I have some mileage on me, but I also have a, like a plenty of the road ahead. And it's like, yeah, I want to learn from what I did in the past and apply it going forward. And so, like, so much of the stuff that I have worked on, like, you know, I only write books that I want to read myself, and this is something that I wanted to try to figure out and something that I wanted to learn from and, and figure out like whether I was some oddball about the regrets that I had turns out I'm not uh, and what I can do with them. Yeah. And, and certainly you're not the only person like you said, as you, when you bring up that term, people lean in a, a chunk of years back, we had Bronnie Ware um, on the podcast who yeah. was that, you know, the palliative care um, person who put on, I guess it was the early days of social media, like the five regrets of the dying Mm-hmm. And that went massively viral. That then leads to this book that goes massively viral. So there's something about the topic that makes people say, huh, uh, like th- this is drawing me in. I want to know more. I want to understand this. Um, and, and I wonder if it's because the experience of regret is so universal. Part of it. But also part of the answer to your question is in the title of your mammoth enterprise, your empire good life. Hmm. That's the thing that surprised me here is that regret. I was not, I didn't go looking for this, but I discovered in doing this research, particularly my own, my own research, not the research. I also, I looked at a whole bunch of academic research on this. What I discovered to my surprise is that regret points the way to the good life, Hmm. that regret 
teaches us about the good life in ways that almost no other topic does. Mm. That to me is that I think that's at the heart of why people are leaning in. Now you figure that out. Good life is your free agent nation. People are, you know, you started this 20 years ago and you said, wait a second, people want to live a good life. And I think the phrase is brilliant because good means pleasurable. Good means meaningful. Good means moral. Right. And so I think this is really at the heart of this, at least the research that I did on regret when I collected regrets all over the world. Those regrets, if you look at people's regrets, the guts of people's regrets and synthesize them, analyze them, they tell you what makes life worth living. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of information embedded in them. Let's do a little bit of defining. When we use the word regret, what are we actually talking about? It's an emotion. And we're talking about that horrible feeling that we have when we say, yeah, my life, things would be better right now if only, that's the key phrase, if only I hadn't done that stupid thing, failed to take that action, committed that that blunder. Um, and it's, it's actually a remarkable thing that our brains can do. Because if you think about it, if I say, if I regret not being kinder in my, in my in, let's say in college, all right? I regret not being kinder in college. So what I do, this, that very act is kind of amazing. What I do is I, I go back in time. I travel backward in time in my head, which is incredible in itself. All right, then I imagine what it would be like, tell a story of the opposite of what really happened, okay? So I'm telling stories. Then I get back in my time machine. I go forward in time and imagine how the present day would be reconfigured if I had done something differently. It's, and we do it, instantly. so it's incredible. So it's a, it's, a, it's a negative emotion where we feel crappy uh, about something we did or didn't do in the past, Mm. That's what regret is. And it's a terrible feeling. It's a stomach churning feeling. It makes us feel bad. But here's the thing. That's the point. Because by making us feel bad, it helps us do better if we treat it right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm paying particular attention to the language that you use because it was you said it, it's something that, quote, we did or didn't do rather than something that happened, whether we had a role Absolutely in it right. happen or not. Because I think of the concept of sliding doors. It's like, ooh, if this thing had happened or if that thing had happened, my life would be profoundly different. But that's it's a different concept than when you have a sense of agency and control and power over that particular moment. Agency is core to feeling regret. There's a difference between regret and disappointment. Hmm. Disappointment isn't your fault. Regret by definition, is your fault. I'll give you the one of the. Uh, they're, 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 I'll give you the best example that I that I, I've heard on this. It comes from Janet Landman, who's one of the early regret researchers at the University of Michigan, and she says, "So imagine a scenario where there's a little kid and she loses a tooth, and at night she take you know she she takes her lost tooth, she puts it be underneath her pillow as kids are wont to do. Then she wakes up in the morning, and the tooth is still there. Okay, she's disappointed." But her parents regret not replacing the tooth with a, with a prize. All right, the parents had agency. The girl didn't. I'll give you another example. Okay, so this is this is from this is from my own life. All right, I don't know how this happened. I've been trying to shake it my whole life. I'm a sports fan, and for whatever weird reason, I care. Okay, and that's a whole other psychological issue about why people care about sports. And I am a fan, as a longtime Washingtonian now, fan of the Washington sports teams. And I pay attention to the Washington Nationals and the Washington Wizards. All right. If the Nationals, I give you the Wizards, they're a real more pathetic team. All right. 
if the Wizards lose, I'm disappointed. I really am. But I can't feel regret. It's not my fault, you know? I didn't play. I didn't pick the team. I didn't coach, right? And so there's a big – so agency is important. And that's partly why it hurts so much because in other circumstances, we can look around and try to point the blame. Oh, my God. What are you doing um, – uh, benching uh, uh, Bradley Beal for half the game. Uh, what are you doing not playing closer defense on the Sixers? But in, in regret, I have no other person to blame. It's my own fault. And that's why it hurts so much. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Every Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So in order to experience regret, then you need to believe, even if it's actually not a true belief, that you had in some way, shape or form, some control or some ability to control an outcome or an experience or a moment. Bingo. 
That's okay. exactly right. And you're on a very interesting point now. And I, and I write about this at, at, toward, the, toward the end of the book. Uh, and, it's, and it's this. So I did a part of the research for this. I, I did two large pieces of research for this. One of them was a quantitative survey. One was a qualitative survey. The quantitative survey took a sample of 4,489 Americans and asked them a bunch of questions about emotions and whatnot, including regret. One of the questions I asked people was, do you generally think that you have some control over your life? Basically, a question about free will. And huge majorities, uh, or, uh, huge majorities of people said, yes, absolutely. All right. Then I asked people, do you think that everything and most things in life happen for a reason? All right. It's basically the opposite question. And huge majorities of people said everything in life happens for, the, for a reason. That is what we <laughs> had was is that you what, what we had is that people said, you know what? I believe that in, in fate and circumstance and I believe in free will. Those two things go together. And at some level, leading a good life, going back to the phrase that pays, is depends on our ability to to, to sort those out. To recognize, and I think regret teaches us this too. Regret teaches us that our lives are a story in which we are both the actor and the author. We're not the we're the actor sometimes. We're the author other times. And understanding that is really important for our our well being. Mm. So then, if you don't, if you buy into more of an an external determination ideal rather than self-determination, does that in your experience from what you've seen, does that actually allow you to opt out of a certain amount of regret? Um, I think it does, but the number of people who believe firmly in that more kind of purely fatalistic view, at least according to my numbers, is very small, Hmm. is very small. The number of people who believe that Fate, circumstance, and things happening for a reason have nothing to do with their life is also relatively small. What I found is that most people believe in both. And right. at first, as a hyper-rational guy, that really irritated me. I'm saying <laughs> right. you got to like, pick a side. Happen. Right, right. But, but, then, but then I realized that that's actually – my view was actually not very sophisticated. That this view that our lives are a mix of self-determination and circumstance – of things we can control and things that we can't control is exactly right. And that our ability to tease those out is what leads to our sense of well-being. And regret teaches us how to regret teaches us how to do that. But if you don't believe in any notion of free will, um, or I don't even say free will, it's too fraught of a comment. If you if you don't believe you have any ability to determine the fate of your life, then you're not gonna have any regrets. And 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 maybe in some ways you have exonerated yourself from that. But the number of people who actually hold that belief is quite small. Mm, yeah, I mean, because I'm thinking of the folks who opt into some sort of very rule-based dogma or tradition, and that happens to exist in theology, in religion, in all these different cultural sort of like rules. If it is so rigid where you're like, okay, I wake up every day and I have the comfort of knowing that for almost anything that comes my way, there's a rule that's going to tell me how to behave. What is the moral behavior mm-hmm. here? What's the appropriate mm-hmm. response? And you follow those rules and then something goes wrong. Like, does that actually allow you to opt out of a certain amount of, well, 
you know, I, I, I did what I was supposed to do and it, and it, it, it didn't end the way that I wanted it to end, but that's not on me. <laughs> yeah, there is. And there's, uh, and there is a kind of, you know, if you're from Voltaire, I'll, 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 you know, Pangloss who said, you know, when bad things happen all for the best and the best of all possible worlds, there is that, that sort of delusional sense. But, but what I found is that, is that people, once I said, is that, is that there aren't a lot of people who believe that singularly. Mm. Most of us have a more sophisticated, at least from my reading of my data, most people have a more sophisticated, nuanced view of their of their lives as a mix of fate and circumstance, as a combination of things they can control and things that they can't control. I think what's important there is to know what we can control, and and I and, and regret I think gives us some gives us a window into that. Um, yeah. What's more, like as I've said, in, you know, I say in the book, the very existence of regret. The fact that it is so prevalent, it's our most prevalent negative emotion. It's one of our most common emotions of any kind. It is ubiquitous that, that everybody has regrets. The only people without regrets are people whose brains have, like five-year-olds whose brains haven't matured and people with Huntington's and Parkinson's and schizophrenia and brain lesions, people who have some kind of disorder. And so the fact that it exists suggests that it has to serve some function just like anything else in evolution. And, and I'm convinced that it serves an, an urgent function that the, I think the evidence is overwhelming that it, that a reason it's one of our most common emotions is that if we treat it right, it's one of our most useful emotions. What's happened though, is that in this country, especially we have gone a little bonkers on positivity. And so anytime there, we have a negative, we think, Oh, negative emotion, bah, banish them. Terrible, terrible Think Positive, sunny, sunny, sunny. And, the point, my, one of my big points is that negative, we should have positive emotions are great. They make life worth living. But if you have a portfolio with only positive emotions, it's not going to work out very well for you. You need negative emotions to survive and thrive and pursue. Here comes the phrase again, that good life that you have to have negative emotions in order to understand what makes things positive. And when we, when we, when we look at the hierarchy of negative emotions, the most important and valuable one is is regret. And if we learn how to reckon with it systematically, we can – it has a whole array of benefits. It helps us improve our decision-making. It increases our performance at school. It can help our careers. It deepens our sense of meaning. It brings us closer to other people. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating how it's been – we've always framed regret as something that is to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. Along with like everything that makes us feel bad, every emotion that sort of is on the, the quote, negative side of the spectrum. And yet – the research is pretty clear now. You know, like a diverse range of emotion, emo diversity exactly. is what actually leads to a life that feels best, not just exactly. this polyanistic look at like yeah exactly. all the time. Exactly, um, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I feel like this country gets it a little bit off that that no. we've been seduced into a kind of a cult of uniformly positive thinking. And again, positive emotions are really, really important. We need to have plenty of them. You need positive emotions in order to lead a good life. But again, but only positive emotions is actually dangerous because you're missing, you're missing things. You're not learning. You're not growing. You're not advancing. You're not making progress. Mm. So we take sort of like the traditional view of regret as you know, this is negative. It's to be avoided. And rather than you saying, well, I, I feel differently. I'm raising my hand saying, no, like there, there are these, there's this and this and this, there are all these reasons that actually it's positive. You go out and actually run your own studies, um, two different studies, the American regret project, where you talked about the quantitative side of it 
Mm-hmm. And then the World Regret Survey, something like 16,000 people in over 100 countries now sharing their regrets, which alone is kind of an astonishing thing to just be able to sit with. I mean, when you start to see those coming in and you're reading what people from all over the world are sharing, what's happening in your mind? I am astonished. I, I couldn't believe how many. I I had I, I, I got almost. I, I I stopped. I had almost. I did almost no publicity, no spreading of the word. And all of a sudden, I have all these things, and I'm like, holy smokes! Like, I don't want to even. I'm not even going to talk about this anymore because it's going to be too overwhelming. I mean, reading through sixteen thousand regrets takes a freaking long time. And um, you know, I didn't want to. You know, I, I and I think one of the things that it. I, I think it, it told me a few things. Number one, people want to talk about this. And there's something about disclosure itself, and, the, and there's subsequently some evidence of this, that something about disclosure itself that helps us reckon with the regrets, mm-hmm. that holding them too tightly, suppressing them, is actually really bad for us. Um, second is that there is a universality in these regrets that really astonished me. And in this case, doing my own research was very helpful because I felt like the existing research didn't quite get it right on what we regretted. The, the traditional research on regret, on sort of what we regretted, looks at the domains of life. It's an education regret. It's a career regret. It's a romance regret. And what I found when you read through these things, one after another, after another, after another, is this, that there's something else going on there. Let me give you an example of that. So um, if I, uh, the best example I think is this, if, if, okay, okay, I got people who, let's say people who went to college, let's go back to, we were talking about college, let's go back to, and both of us have kids in college, so college is front of mind. So I think about, I could literally, I'm not joking around. I think that one could start a travel agency or a travel business geared toward people who went to college and now who graduated from college and now regret not studying abroad. That the number of people like, okay, so, so that's like, oh, I wish I had like, had, hadn't played it so safe and had studied abroad. Huge numbers of people like that. Okay. That's an education regret. Meanwhile, I have hundreds of regrets around the world, literally around the world that have, a, that essentially have the same format, which goes like this. X years ago, I met a man, woman, slash woman, whom I really liked, and I wanted to ask him or her out, but I didn't, and I still regret it. That's a romance regret. Then I have people going back to free agination, all right? Oh, man, I always wanted to start my own business, but I never had the guts to do it, and now I'm in this lackluster job, and I really regret not taking it, okay? So that's a career regret. Now, the traditional categorization would be like, oh, these are three different regrets. To me, they're the same regret. It's a regret about taking a chance. It's a regret about being bold. And what I found is that around the world, all these regrets seem to come back to the same four things. And there's, there are four core regrets. And the universality of them is astonishing. Uh, the universality of regrets is kind of amazing. I mean, in a way, the quantitative portion of the survey was slightly disappointing on this front because hmm. the reason I, I created a representative sample was so I could do cross tabs to say, oh, you know, um, uh, white people regret this and black people regret that. And, you know, um, women regret this and men regret that. And old people regret this and, uh, and young people regret that. And people in the eastern part of the United States regret this. And people in the western part of the United States regret that. And in fact, there's not a huge amount of difference in why, in that. So, um, you know, so, so, you know, so I did all this quantitative research. You know, it, you know, commissioning this this expensive and really kind of awesome survey, only to find that there wasn't a huge amount of difference based on things like gender and race and and uh, location. Mm. So it's really a, just such a universal um, yeah. experience, almost no matter where you are, no matter who you are. 
So your research shows that the old notion of domain-based or role-based regrets is maybe not really accurate. And you identify these four different categories. I think it's accurate. I don't think it's the big story. Okay. And I did that. I did, I did on my quantitative survey, I actually asked people to group it in, in, in domains. And what I found was something, what I found is that people regret spread across whole number of different areas. It's when I got to those, when I, when I went to those 16,000 qualitative regrets and started looking through them, I said, okay, there's something bigger going on here. And, and I think that that is the, the, the real, I think it's useful to see what, uh, the domains of life in which people have regrets. I think that's I think that's super interesting. I think it's more revealing to know that around the world, whatever the domain of life, these four core regrets keep coming up. Mm. So you mentioned one of them, a boldness regret. Yeah. First, I want to know a little bit more about that. And then let's walk through uh, all four of them because I think it's really fascinating. So the boldness sure. regret you say is is basically built around looking back and saying like, I, sh- I should have, or like, I didn't do this thing. If only I'd taken the chance. Right. If only I'd taken that chance. All these regrets begin at a juncture. You can go this way. You can go that way. You can play it safe or take a chance. And overwhelmingly, far fewer people regret taking a chance than playing it safe. Overwhelmingly. Uh, even, if, even if things don't work out, uh, there's something, and, and I think that tells us something about about what a good life is. A good life is a life where we know that it's not, we're not here permanently. We want to do something. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to test the limits. We want to do something psychologically rich. And I think that's a fundamental human need. The fund, there's a fundamental human need for, for growth. And the way we experience growth is that we, we try stuff. We do something bold. And when we don't, we regret it. So that's one of the, the four core regrets. Yeah, which is interesting that you focus on growth, not on having succeeded at the thing. Um, because, you know, if, when I think about a boldness regret, you know, part of it is the assumption that had I taken this action, it would have ended up the way that I wanted it to end up, which would be in some way what I assume is better than, you know, like the, the situation that I have yeah. currently, which may or may not be true. Um, but what you're right. saying is regardless of that, like the deeper thing here is just, Having said yes to something where I actually, I stand in place of agency, I take an action and there's an opportunity for growth, no matter how it ends up, there's something about that, regardless of the outcome. Absolutely. It could be because you know, and you've mm. done something. And I think that people, it's a great point, Jonathan. I think that people are, are pretty clear right about that. They even say, let, let's take the regret about not asking somebody out on a date. In, in those regrets, in the written, you know, in the, in the, people say, oh yeah, there was this guy, Joe, and I was sort of in love with him. And and I think he was into me, but I was too chicken to ask him out. And then they say, like, I don't even know if Joe and I would have gone anywhere, but I want to know. Like, I wish I had tried that kind of thing. And so I, I think people are, are surprisingly, at least I was surprised, clear eyed about that. It isn't about this. Some of it is about the imagined success, but it's not really about that. It's about, God, I just should have done something. It's, mm. it, it is about that idea. And it's interesting because it goes to your other part. It, 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 it's like it's this it's this idea like I had agency. That's a privilege, and I didn't use it. What a fool! Mm. It's almost like wa- like a sense of wasted agency. Yeah. Like I wish I was the yeah, type of exactly. person who did X yeah. because I had yeah. the opportunity to, and maybe somebody didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interestingly, okay, so that's boldness. Foundation regrets. Talk to me about this. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work, and these span a lot of domains. So it's people who say, oh, "I wish I had saved more money. I wish I had um, taken care of my body and exercised more." Um, if only I hadn't smoked, if only I'd worked harder in school, 
I might be uh, have more skills, that kind of thing. It's choices we've made where it, because of our choice, our foundation is a little bit wobbly. And to me, now there's some interesting things about that. Uh, one of them is that that's one area where I don't think people, and I mentioned this, don't have full 100% agency mm. because if you didn't like work hard in school or you dropped out of college, is that only on you or is it because you went to a crappy secondary school uh, or because you were weighed down with student loans or something like that? So, so that's one area where people don't have full, full agency. But to me, what it suggests is that a good life has some stability to it. That, that, and, I, and I use that word foundation intentionally. Like if your foundation is mushy or wobbly, that is not a good life. Uh, you need some degree of stolidity as a base for that for that life. And when people take action that erodes that, they really, really deeply regret it. Again, things like uh, around the world, things like smoking, which we traditionally call a health a health regret, but also um, you know financial regrets, largely about you know spending over saving. Really, was what it was. You know, and again, and I use the you know the the, the Aesop fable of uh, the the ant and the grasshopper. It's like people regret being the ant and wish they were the grasshopper. Yeah, this is, it's interesting because I was thinking about this particular category. And um, this is the category where in my mind, I was, I got really curious. I'm like, I wonder what the quantitative overlay of this is. Because this like, you know, when you see, well, well, not everybody starts on equal footing, not everyone in the evil plane. So like, this is the domain, this is the type of regret where I'm thinking to myself, that it could show up really differently depending on circumstance. Uh, I think that's right. And a, a big part of regret goes to opportunity. Hmm. And so one of the things that you see, the one racial difference that I saw in the quantitative data is if you look at the surface domains is that uh, African-Americans had more education regrets than white Americans. And I think it was largely because their opportunity, I think we can assume that is that African-Americans are more likely to have that educational opportunity thwarted or have that not be available to them. And so opportunity is at the core, opportunity is at the core of regret. And I think foundation regrets are, uh, you know, I mean, I say this explicitly, I, I, I say this explicitly in the book that that's one area where your circumstances play a role. That's, but at the same point, there is still agency. Yeah. And so that, that's one area where it's a little bit, uh, where it's a little bit murky. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Moral regrets. Tell me about this. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing or you can do the wrong thing. You do the wrong thing and you regret it. And the two biggest types of offenses that I detected were bullying. Amazing. The number of people who regret bullying kids in school. They're in their 60s and 70s and they look back. It's bullying. Uh, It's marital infidelity is a big regret that people have. You know, at some level, when I was, you asked how I, what was, what it was like when I realized all these people were offering regrets, I was thinking, holy moly, I'm doing like an online confessional here. You know, I feel like a priest and people are coming to me and just people are confessing. Uh, more regrets are tricky though. It's a sm- relatively small category, but there, you know, our notion of what, what is moral, we don't have a full right. understanding of it. Most of, a full consensus of most of us agree that harming other people, swindling other people is bad. But when it comes to other kinds of things, how much should we respect authority? How much should we value the sacred? Uh, there, are, there are some divides. The thing about moral regrets is that it's one of those areas where I think we do have a lot of agency. At least people say that they have a lot of agency on these things. The other thing about moral regrets is that I find them heartening. Mm. I find it actually heartening that people are bugged by Things they unethical, immoral things they did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It suggests that we want to be good and that the need that this these moral regrets are surfacing is our need to be good. And I find that in some ways affirming. Yeah, which goes back to what you were saying in the you know, earlier part of our conversation about there being real value in acknowledging regret and then sort of like diving into it. What's this actually telling us? What's the data be- beneath the emotion? Right, right. And it's also, you know, and again, moral regrets give us like all these regrets give us guidance for the future. But if you reflect on this, if you say, wow, wait a second, I really mistreated someone. I feel awful about that. I think that then people have said in the interview said explicitly, you know, and because of that, because I felt so bad about that, it's like, I actually make a more affirmative effort to Mm. treat people better, you know, uh, later on. But, but it's, it's amazing how long these, these stick with me. I just remember one woman who I interviewed who was relating the story of, I had to do all these interviews on zoom and I, and I, which is not, which is, you know, suboptimal. And I, and I 
I, I got these interviews because in the World Regret Survey, the qualitative portion, there was a field. I said, you know, if you're interested in being interviewed, please leave your email address. And again, to your earlier point, we had something like 30 percent of people opted in to be interviewed. Wow. Which was like, I know I couldn't believe it. And I was expecting it to be like six, seven percent. And so I got so so, you know, so I interviewed I was able to interview a lot of people. But there's one woman who I'm remembering her first name is Kim, who told the story about bullying a kid. I think she was like eight or nine years old. And even in relating the story, she's in her 50s. So it's like 40 something years later to to, to me uh, via Zoom. She's tearing up because she feels so bad about what she did. And what she did was actually not even the most egregious form of bullying that people revealed. But but there is something, I, I do think there's something affirming to that. We want to be good. Yeah. A good, and this is, this is why, like a good life involves goodness. It doesn't involve only pleasure. It involves morality, goodness, the, fulfilling your obligations, treating people well, and anything else that is a part of one's uh, moral code. Yeah. I, I um, in the early days of social media, which was not all that long ago, <laughs> I got a direct message. So I would have been in my 40s. I got a direct message from a kid who I grew up with, who I want to mm. say I was probably eight or nine years old, where I got bullied by this person. Mm. And mm. 40 years later, you know, like you know, 35, mm. 40 years later, I get a message from this person out of the blue apologizing. Wow. Because this had been weighing on this person. And, and th- I mean, I'm long over this, you know, like this is like way, way, way in my passage, you know, and, and, but this, that like this moment had been weighing on that individual's mind for decades of their lives. There was this moral regret that like you said, it just never went away to the point where they literally felt like they needed to reach out to me in any way that they could. And this was the one way they found where I could be reached out to, um, to make amends. And it was, it was this moment for me where I'm like, wow, this is like, I actually, my heart went out to this person. Cause I was like, I've been, mm-hmm. o- I've been over this for a really long time. <laughs> How did you respond? Um, I basically like, look, you know, like we were kids. I mean, we all do stupid things, you know, and we all do things that with, with you know, outcomes that were not intended. And of course, you know, like move, we move on and everything's good. Um, but it was, it was a real moment for me to, to realize how long people carry things that in their minds are, you know, like are, are really big and, yeah, they're just constantly there. Like they never quite leave them. And and, and it, I think what's interesting about that is that what advice that does that guy give to his own kids if he has kids? Right. And I think that's the other thing about our regrets is that they offer guidance for ourselves, but we can deploy them to instruct others. Uh, and that's certainly something that's really important when people get uh, get older. Like there's, you know, if, if you're in your if you're in your eighties. You can still apply. You still have you know some of your life ahead of you, obviously, and you can apply lessons going forward. But another thing that people do in that in that stage of life is take their regrets, extract lessons from them, and try to share them with the next generation. Right. And if you didn't feel regret, then you don't have the the lesson to share. <laughs> Not saying you want to actually you know go do something just so you can have a regret, so you can have a lesson, and you can have a behavior. This change, is the but... paradox. <laughs> regret makes us feel bad. That's the point. Right. <laughs> By making us feel bad, it helps us do better. That's the point. And this is this is goes back to earlier what we were talking about. It's like it's why. So therefore, avoiding negative emotions is like avoiding ways to do better. Mm. All right. The fourth one, connection regress. 
Connection regrets. This is the biggest category. These are relationships. Uh, and, it, and what's interesting about this is that it doesn't matter what the relationship is, really. Um, uh, it could be spouse or partner. could be toward your parents. could be toward your extended family, siblings, friends. Oh, my gosh. The number of regrets revolving around friendship were incredible to me. Friendship, one of the things that I learned from this is, is just how deeply important friends are in people's lives and how bad they feel when friendships come apart and and they usually come apart in slow non-dramatic ways and what happens is is that people want to reach out but they say ah oh, i don't know it's going to be really awkward if i reach out and they're not going to care anyway and of course we're totally wrong on both of those fronts when people reach out it's not awkward and people do appreciate it and one of the interesting things you might appreciate this as a writer is that in writing this book i'm interviewing people and i'm trying to tell their story and because of the nature of what we're talking about, they say, I'm going to do something about this. And they change the freaking story on me. So, you know, uh, and so, um, you know, so I, I ended up thinking that I had this, this, this like hermetically sealed lockdown, really tight little narrative. And they say, guess what? I, and I get an email. Guess what I did yesterday? That thing that I regretted not doing for 40 years, I decided to do something about it. I'm like, oh, man. Okay, we got to get back on the phone because I got to write. I got to like, you know, I got to tell this full story. But uh, connection regrets uh, suggest that, you know, not, I don't think it's a surprise, but what gives our life meaning are other people. And when those relationships come apart, it hurts. And to me, the lesson for that, it's actually important to me, Pink, personally, is the lesson I've derived from, from this is always reach out. Like I've, I've changed my view on that uh, from these from these all these regrets. My, my lesson is always reach out. If you are wondering whether you should reach out, reach out. The very act of wondering suggests that you should reach out. Always reach out. 99 times out of 100, it's going to be well-received. Always, always reach out. So you use the word awkward as yeah. sort of like the basis for why a lot of people shared with you that they didn't do that. And this is a word that I've seen pop up in the younger generation, like hashtag awkward. It stops so many of us. There's something about the feeling of awkwardness mm. that is so powerful and that we experience as being so negative that it literally yeah. stops us from a simple reach out, from repairing. We, we, won't, we would prefer to endure years and maybe decades of regret <laughs> rather than exactly. five minutes of awkwardness while we stumble well through said. the conversation. But well it's said. that powerful that it stops us. I mean, that's kind of mind-boggling. Yep. And awkwardness, at least my reading of the... Uh, Melissa Dahl has a good book on this that I encourage your listeners to take a look at, where she looked at some of the research on uh, and just some of the, the the circumstances of people feeling awkward. But but my read of the research on, on awkwardness is that it's like a... Um, you ever see those cartoons where there's like a... There's a mouse, and but because of the nature of where the light is coming from, the shadow on the wall is it makes it seem like this giant beast. That's what that's what we completely overstate our fears about awkwardness. And to the point where you say very, very well, I wish I had said something like this in the book. It's like we're willing to endure years of regret instead of moments of awkwardness, which is absurd. But that has to do with sometimes uh, one reason people have foundational regrets is something called temporal discounting, where we are so concerned about pain in the short term that we are willing to um, to avoid pain in the short term, we actually create pain in the long term. Yeah, we are weird that way. Um, well, we're weird a lot of ways, but that way in particular. 
So we've got these four regrets. We all experience them to some level. Like you shared, the research shows some of them are much lesser. They don't endure nearly as long and, and they don't happen nearly as frequently, but we all have like our own, you know, like special sauce flavor. We have you know, our own stew um, of some variety of all four of them. How do we, how do we look at these different moments, these different experiences, regrets that we have and understand an intelligent process to then say, how do I extract the value in these? And then what do I, what do I do about this? Um, in order to, to actually take this and not just make it a negative experience that endures in my life. Like how do we turn it into value? And then how do we turn value into behavior? Great, great way to put the question. So, uh, so I, I, there is, the way I uh, look at this is there's a three-step process. It's relatively straightforward. One of them is self-disclosure. It's very important that we disclose that we, that we talk about our regrets, that we disclose our regrets. And once again, it's another awkwardness uh, overstated. Uh, we fear that when we disclose vulnerabilities about ourselves, people will like us less. They like us more. Um, uh, they actually relate to us. We, they feel a greater sense of empathy. They admire our courage. So self-disclosure is the first step. Even writing about them privately, there's some good research from uh, James Pennebaker at Texas showing that even private writing can relieve the burden of regret. So get it out there. Mm. And one of the things that one of the things that is that is important, it's, it's, I think it's pretty interesting, is that with negative emotions, they're sort of uh, abstract in a way, and by putting them in words. We make them concrete, and that, in some ways, I'm using mixing metaphors here, it sort of defangs them mm. a little bit. That we that it's a sense making function. Whereas when we try to explain positive experiences, we shouldn't try to explain and make sense of positive experiences. We should just enjoy them because when we have positive experience and try to explain them, we actually drain some of the positivity from it. So disclose them. Second second step. Um, I was blown away by the research on self-compassion. We should show ourselves compassion about these regrets. And self-compassion is a triangulation between two extremes. One is self-esteem. Not terrible. Has some benefits, but also has some big, big downsides. It corrodes empathy. It reduces persistence. It can increase narcissism. The other side of that, and I was also just blown away by this, is self-criticism. And I was amazed there's very little self-evidence that self-criticism is effective. I mean, it's kind of a waste of time. We, I mean, it seems virtuous. I certainly think it's virtuous. I'm, I've become expert in it over 50 years. But it doesn't have that much of an effect. What self-compassion does is kind of steers between the complacency of, of, of self-esteem and the contempt of self-criticism and allows us basically treat ourselves with the same kindness we treat somebody else recognize that we uh, that that our mistakes our flaws our setbacks are part of the human condition that we're not that unique in that regard and it and what it does is that it it relieves the burden of it 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 sort of it reduces the weight of it, it we, we, if we treat ourselves like we would treat somebody else and so one of the things about self criticism is anybody we, we, when you and I are talking I happen to be wearing a T-shirt from a, a, a race that I ran a few years ago. And so, I, you know, when I run, I swear at myself. I insult. <laughs> I would never talk that way to anybody else. And it turns out it's totally useless. And so what we should do is we treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt and recognize, treat ourselves with self-compassion. The final step is, um, is self-distancing. Uh, we are terrible at solving our own problems. And what you need to do is you need to distance yourself in time, in space, uh, even with language. So some well-known research about talking to yourself in the third person is a better way to extract a lesson. 
uh, going forward in time, 10 years from now and looking back and saying, uh, what do I want? What will I have wanted? What, what, what do I want to have done 10 years from now? Uh, asking yourself, what would you tell your best friend to do in this circumstance? Taking your regret and imagining yourself like in a clean room, examining it as like a doctor of regret and saying, okay, what is this telling me? And, and, and that three-step process, disclose, self-compassion, and, and self-distancing allows us to extract that lesson. Now, getting the lesson doesn't necessarily guarantee the behavior, right. but it's the, it's, the, it's the necessary first step. And for me, I think the, what, the, best way to, the best way to promote the behavior is to be uh, pretty stingy about which regrets you focus on. Only focus on the important regrets. Don't try to fix everything. Take one regret, extract a lesson from it, and begin with simple steps to get small wins to apply that lesson in the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And those those three different things, you know, it's interesting. So self-disclosure, really interesting that simply even like journaling it, writing it only for yourself yes. can have an effect. That's That's really powerful because I think a lot of resistance for people would be like, I don't want anyone else to know, you know, like this is, I feel, I feel a sense of shame around it, but knowing that you can literally sit down and, and just like write it out in detail for, for only for you to see. And that alone can have a powerful effect. It's very free. It's very, you you, you could write about it for 15 minutes a day for three days. I can do it. And if you don't even like writing, you can talk about it in a voice recorder. What it is, is it's partly the disclosure in some ways disclosing it to yourself, but it's also the sense-making function that language has. Mm. That language takes these blobby mental abstractions and, and turns them into something more concrete. And that, in some ways, reduces the, the negative power of these, of these emotions. That sense-making function of language is really important. And that's what disclosure does. But the other thing, again, that, I'll give you another example from this. I have, I had, for a few people in, who I write about in the book, their regrets were pretty significant. And they were like, reflected pretty badly on them. And I gave, cause I'm not, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not trying to like get anybody. I'm like, okay, listen, like if I really want to talk to you, I love your story. You know, if you want to, you know, me just to use your first name, if you want me to, you know, uh, you know, use a different name or something like that, you know, we'll have to be fact checked and everything, but I don't have, we don't have to reveal it. I had only two people mm. who I had one person, that's it. One person didn't want me to use his last name. The other person, we came up with a made-up name for her. But I have people talking about bullying, talking about um, infidelity, talking about not saving money for themselves, uh, talking about mistreating other people, uh, talking about doing really stupid things. Totally fine using their first and last names. And I think that says something. I mean, I think that self-disclosure is a relief. And the thing is, like, having talked... Truly, it's like to give you, I don't think less of people for revealing this. I actually can totally empathize with them and I, and I admire the courage of doing that. I don't think, and that's the thing. It's like, we're totally, we're, 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 our predictions about how people are going to react are totally wrong. But, but if you're skittish, that's cool. 15 minutes a day of writing about it, 15 minutes a day of talking about it into a voice recorder. Yeah. So powerful. And, and the notion of self-compassion also, I, I find really interesting. I'm, I'm somebody who who's at a longstanding meditation practice and you know, it's a daily practice and at least once a week and oftentimes more than that, I swap in what we call the meta meditation or loving kindness meditation. Mm, yeah. And it's an interesting meditation from the standpoint of self-compassion because you go through a series of variations. You repeat the same phrase over and over, but over time you change who it applies to. And the first wave is always you apply it to yourself. 
right? So, you know, like maybe, maybe safe, maybe healthy, maybe, uh, you know, like at peace, may I live with ease. And you repeat that a number of times and then you move on to someone you love and then you move on to somebody you, you know, don't know very well. And then you move on to someone who's done you wrong and then you move on to all beings. And what's interesting is like, you know, you would think that in a meditation like that, which is effectively also kind of a form of prayer, the way you look at it, it should be other focused. And yet it always starts with you, you know, because you're mm. offering that same lens of loving kindness and, and self-compassion to yourself. And that's no matter every variation I've ever seen, no matter how the language changes, it always starts there. And yet so many of us feel uncomfortable starting there. It's a great, great point. I mean, that's a great point. In some ways, we do it the wrong order that we, you know, we show, you know, we show compassion to others who we don't even know. We give to charity. We feel bad for people who've been devastated by things. We show compassion to friends of ours who have been who've been sick. We, we show compassion to people who've made mistakes. All of us have had friends or relatives come to us and say, oh, my God, I just did something really stupid. I really screwed up. And we don't, you know, we offer them compassion. But we don't do it to ourselves. And and I, I have to say, I was I didn't know much about this research on self-compassion. A lot of it was uh, pioneered by uh, Kristen Neff at the University right. of Texas. And I found it incredibly powerful. Like, it really changed my view of both. I was always skeptical of self-esteem, but I was a true believer in self-criticism. And I think neither one of those are that great. What it really is, is self-compassion. Treat yourself with the same kind of huge extent to somebody else and don't, I mean, at some level, not to be too harsh, but you know, if I'll give you an example, um, you know, I, I have some moral regrets. Uh, I don't love talking about them, but I have some moral regrets in my, in my previous life. And, and, and at some level I'm such an idiot. I thought I was the only one. And now I got these, like everybody has these moral regrets and I'm like, Oh, Okay. You know, I'm not that special. Like part of having, you know, part of doing things, doing the wrong thing is, is the human condition. And I don't want to become complacent about that, but I don't want to say I'm the only one in humanity who's ever done the wrong thing. And therefore I should be excoriated by myself. No, you want to show the same compassion to yourself that you would go to those other, you know, that we more, maybe more easily go to these other outer circles. Yeah. And I think that's got to be so much of the power of the database that you put together, the study also. Like when you start to see the numbers and you start, mm. there's no way for you to look at that database and say, you know, like 16,000 people from a hundred plus countries, we've all experienced the same thing. We've all had the same, you know, like foundational quote failures or regrets or missteps or decisions I would have done differently and moral ones and this and that. It's, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, so I'm actually not the freak here. I'm just right. like everybody else. Like this is actually normalized behavior. So if we're all in this together, then maybe if I actually own this and do something about it, and maybe th then it's not going to make me like cast out, but maybe it's the thing that allows me to stay in. Amen, brother. I mean, it, that's what self-compassion does. It normalizes as to use your word. And then by normalizing it neutralizes. Mm, yeah. So powerful. Um, you know, a lot of when I looking at the book and looking at the work you've been doing for a chunk of years now, it's a really, it's a really big reframe. You know, like the net effect here is let's say like, let's all own the fact that regret shows up in all of our lives. It is as you've identified such a powerful, powerful emotion. And rather than saying, how do we, how do we live a life where we never have to experience it? And how do we pretend that whatever mm. we have doesn't exist? 
how do we mm-hmm. actually tap it? You know, like how do we not, using your language, not minimize it, but optimize around it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's it because I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a true believer now, obviously having done the work, but the, but it is a powerful emotion and it's an incredibly useful emotion, but it's tricky. I mean, you can't, you know, listen, I don't want to go, I'm not, I don't want to go overboard here. Like, like if you spend too much time wallowing in your regrets, you're going to be miserable. I mean, you know, you, you have to, it's, it's basically like we, I don't, I, I don't feel like in our culture, we have been taught how to deal with negative feelings. And, and I think that really goes to the heart of it. Like, like at some level, I think that in like we, we've been, some of us have been taught ne- feelings of any kind, <laughs> ignore them. They don't make any difference. They don't reveal anything. I think on the other hand, you're people who've gone the other way. It's like, oh, feelings are the only truth. And so if you do the first one you, and you ignore your negative emotions, you're going to be diluted. If you wallow in your negative emotions, bathe in them, luxuriate in them, you're going to be miserable. But if you say negative emotions are instructions, negative emotions are like emails or telegrams from the universe telling us things that negative emotions are stuff is, is are things that we should think about that we should confront and think about, then they are incredibly instructive. They are much more instructive than positive emotions. There's no doubt about that. And once again, in the hierarchy of negative emotions, our old friend regret sits there at the top. It is the most instructive negative emotion we have. Mm. Um, I'm thinking as you're sharing that, that, that some, kind of an interesting reference popped into my head. I'm thinking about um, the Jewish tradition, sitting Shiva after somebody um, dies. And there's this structure around uh, if effectively feeling it fully and utterly feeling it surrounding yourself where you're, you're it's disclosed you're sharing your feelings you're being fully supported by everyone around you and there's there's a process built around it and then saying like you, you don't never feel that again but now it's sort of like then you move into the next stage and it's interesting to sort of say okay so like regret like yeah how do you sit shiva for regret you know what's the process by which and that's so much of what you've actually laid out in this book it's not just fascinating research it's like Here's process. Like here's how to deal with this moving forward, so that we can actually, as you keep sort of circling back to that phrase that we have both been pursuing in different ways for so many years, live a good life. Yeah, but I mean, listen, I, I don't want to turn this into a into a, a Talmudic debate, but uh, let me let me see your shiva and raise you Yom Kippur. Mm, that in the true. Jewish faith, <laughs> right? In the Jewish faith, there is a day where and now it's 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 seeped in religion in that and it uses words like sin and atonement which are stronger words and and not and and religiously drenched words obviously uh but that that yom kippur the day of atonement says okay we are going to we're going to reckon with these things that we've done that are wrong we are going to reflect on them but remember yom kippur lasts only a day so it's not like you know if Yom Kippur was a, was six months you'd be miserable, right? It's like we're gonna we're gonna take this stab of negativity, reflect on it, and use it as a path to go forward. Mm. Yeah, I, I I would venture to guess that we'll probably find similar structures across so many different traditions. Yeah, yeah. There, are, I mean, there. Are, I mean, certainly in the Catholic religion, the 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 idea of confessionals and 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 then the expiation for these kinds of things. Again, I'm. 
I have a very secular, very secular view of this. Right. I think that there are echoes of this, and that it, there's a and and what I think is is true in certain that that there are there are echoes of this. So certainly in the Catholic confessional, there is a sense making function that comes by putting these feelings of that you've done something wrong into words, and the ritual of disclosure and expiation is itself, I think, a useful ritual in in the Jewish tradition. You know. You, uh, Yom Kippur, where you reflect on your on your sins and you actually harm yourself by not eating. Um, again, th- there's, those are there are echoes of this, and and I think what it suggests, it, it, and, and we see this we see this in a lot of work on 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 religion and how certain religious practices conform with what we know about psychological well being. Not all, but but many of them do, and we also know that. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that people who have some kind of religious faith are happier and live longer in general than people who don't. And, you know, those of us who are much more secular might not like that. But I, I think the evidence there is is overwhelming and because what it because what it gives us a sense of purpose. It allows us to take these negative emotions and do something with them. It, we're part of a community. And so, again, I mean, I'm not I'm not just saying this just to be funny or because it's you, but it, it, I think all of it goes back to this pursuit that we have, this innate need we have to lead a good life in all of the dimensions of that word good. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, right, and this is what you write and speak specifically about, you know, like, so regret may be a, a retroactive or a retrospective emotion, but we can, by not ignoring it, but by actually stepping into it, by addressing it, by using the three tools you suggested, and there are others that you write about within the book as well, you know, we can understand what it's telling us so that we can mm. look to our future and it can inform how we step into our future differently. I'll give you I'll give you your second amen of the broadcast. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. Um, I've asked this question of you before. Years have passed since then, so I'm going to circle back and mm. ask it again. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Yeah, to lead a good life is to love and be loved. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. I'm absolutely convinced of that. I think that, again, like as I say in the Jewish tradition, all the rest is commentary. Mm, thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the earlier conversation that we had with Dan about the powerful role of timing in life. You'll find a link to Dan's earlier episode in the show notes. Good Life Project is a part of the ACAST Creator Network. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it? Maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields. Signing off for Good Life Project.